0: There's been a lot of different variations about the story about the man who fell into the pit and he couldn't get himself out and how everybody came along to give the worldview but nobody could help him. Maybe you've seen this joke on the internet and there's different variations of it. But it kind of goes like this. The Christian scientist came along and saw the guy in the pit and said, you only think you're in a pit. The moralist came along and looked down at him and said, only bad people fall into the pit. You must have done something to deserve this pit. The mathematician came along, looked at him, and calculated how he fell into the pit and what his odds were of getting out of the pit. (laughs) Sorry, Russ. (laughs) The news reporter came along and wanted to do a news story on how he fell into the pit and how nobody was willing to get him out of the pit. The Buddhist came along and said, your pit is just an illusion, it's only a state of mind. The optimist came along and said, things could be worse. The pessimist came along and said, things will get worse. The pragmatist came along and said, you just need to build a ladder to get out of the pit. The health and wealth preacher came along and said, you're supposed to be living your best life now. Where's your faith to get out of this pit? You just need to believe a better day is coming. But none of these people helped them get out of the pit. Well, the Bible actually tells us how people got out of their pit. That's what this psalm is telling us. Listen to God's word. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delighted to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Let those be appalled because of their shame, who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Lord God, we ask that you would teach us how to pray to pray as you pray here. Help us to learn these deeper truths more and more that we would feed and talk back to our souls, that we'd feed ourselves upon your word, that these messages in the Psalms would be very helpful for our own personal growth and grace. And we ask now that you would take your word and drive it deep into our souls, bringing hope and consolation and pray it will bring good fruit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just encourage you, before we get into the message here, today is December 31st, and there are lots of reading plans out there. If you've never read God's word from cover to cover, even if you have, this is our life. The Bible says these words are life. We need this word more than we need our breakfast, our lunch, and our dinner. This is the words of life. It doesn't return void, Um, and it's what God uses primarily to change us to his image and make us more like him. Um, It brings consolation. It brings joys. It's a treasure. It's better than rubies. It's better than honey. I mean, we could go on and on. Um, My dad, when I saw my dad's life change, he was in his 40s. I was in college, and He did a Bible reading plan, and he read the Bible from cover to cover in a year, and it read him, and it turned his life upside down. And I just would want to encourage you, if you've never, particularly if you've never read the Bible through, would you find a plan and follow it? There's tons of them on the internet. There's some of them that are in the back of your Bibles. My my Bible actually has a plan in the back of it. And if you, if that's too much, how about the Psalms? There's 150 Psalms. You read five a day, you could read them in a month. Um, but find some, something where you're in God's Word on a daily basis. Okay. Let me, if you have a sheet of paper, I may encourage you to take out a sheet of paper. Take out the bulletin, you can use it, but picture a window. I want you to picture a window and use this sheet of paper as a window. And basically, I want you to just put a line, a vertical line down it and a horizontal line across it so you've got four panes that you're looking out of. Pretty simple. You've got a, A left top, a right top, a left bottom, and a right bottom, and you've got a window, okay? You've got four squares, and we're going to talk about those four squares this morning because we're going to look at this psalm through four windows, okay? We're going to look at it through David's life story, then we're going to look at it through Jesus' life story, and then we're going to look at it through the big picture of the Bible story, and the last is your story, Okay, those are your four windows, okay? So the first is, the left top corner is David's life story. That's primarily who, I mean, David wrote the psalm, right? The scriptures are 100% God, 100% man. Who wrote, who wrote Psalm 40? God did, but David did. David wrote it, but the Holy Spirit inspired him. And the Holy Spirit had other things in mind that David didn't even know about that Hebrews 10 quotes, that Jesus was praying Psalm 40 in heaven before he ever came to earth. We'll get to that in a minute. But first of all, it's David's story. This is David's psalm. It's his struggle. This is a real experience that he's experiencing. He has enemies. He's got a big trial. He feels like he's in a, he's remembering, um, he's in a pit again, but he's remembering the two parts to it. The first 11 verses are the praises of testimony, and verses 12 to 20 are petitions of lament. And so we have the praises and then the petitions. So typically we go from petitions, most of the Psalms will go from petitions to praises. This one's kind of in reverse order. So let's kind of dive into David's experience here. So in verse 1 we see the petition and the, and the patience I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. David cried a lot. This is good for us to hear as God's people. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. This is what godly people do. We live in a a world that thinks that godly people shouldn't have to cry out for anything, that everything should already be given to them, and that everything should just be honky-dory and life should be great, and you should be experiencing your best life now kind of thing. And the Bible tells us that blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. David cried a lot. He says in Psalm 6, verses 6 to 8, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. David wept. He cried. And I think this is important for us as God's people to get a grip on that that it's okay. I remember I used to struggle when I used to hear about people being depressed when I first started the ministry. The people that were sitting under my preaching were depressed. How can this be? Well, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think that way anymore. I recognize that a lot of people are struggling. And the reality is I'm struggling too. And I almost think sometimes it's more normal to be depressed than to be encouraged. Why do I say that? Because godly people know how much this world is broken. And they know how much it's not right. And they long for it to be right. Most of the Psalms are laments. Laments, most of them. Because God's people often start low. And they have to drive truth into their souls and remind themselves. And this is what David is doing. And not only is he crying, he's waiting. And some of you are just waiting Poor Neva is just waiting, you know. So, and this is where God often meets His people is in waiting. Some of you are waiting to be married, waiting to be remarried, waiting. That's a difficult place, and yet often God's promises are right in that moment of waiting. Listen to just to remind you of a couple of these promises. The psalmist said in Psalm 27, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I want to see it again in this life. And he ends with, wait for the Lord. Be strong, let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 31, love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the one, the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself. It tends only to evil for the evildoers shall be cut off but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. For God alone O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope my soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. O Lord, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel From all his iniquities, David is waiting. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. And it says, he drew me up from the pit of destruction. Now this pit can be literal, it can be metaphorical. I think here it's metaphorical, but there are a few occasions in scripture where people were in literal pits, Joseph and Jeremiah. We are told about Jeremiah, it says they took Jeremiah, cast him into the cistern of Melchiah, the king's son, who was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mire, and Jeremiah sank in the mire. David has a picture in Psalm 69, very similar here. He says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my soul. I have sunk in deep mire. There's no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. You see, the idea of the pit of destruction, this word destruction in Hebrew is the word roar, which is the idea of waters, waters teeming, crashing in. Psalm 42 talks about all your breakers, all your waves just to come billowing over us. And sometimes you feel like, man, it's just one thing after another just keeps knocking me down. It's the imagery of the pit. Yet in the midst of the pit, we have a provision from the Lord, from the pit to the rock. And David is, is remembering, he drew me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. God answered his prayer. And when God answered his prayer with that provision, we have the psalm of a new song. And the psalm of the new song is most likely Psalm 40, the very one you're reading. This is a psalm of a new song. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God, and many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And notice how this psalm is relentless, in talking about how God delivers us from our trials, and when he comes and renews us and lifts us up and answers our prayer, he doesn't just do it for us, he wants us to proclaim it and give praise to him, but praise to the body, praise to the congregation, praise to the world. Notice how in verse three, he he wants to give praise to God, but also he says in verse nine, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. Verse 10, I have, I have hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness in the great congregation. And then in verse 16, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. The idea is this, God delivers his people so that they will praise him to others. God uses our trials to bring us to our senses, to bring us, to show us our need. He makes us weak, but also in when he lifts us up in weakness and delivers us, when people see that, they see God. They see God's strength. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. You shall glorify me. You give him the praise. Put it and write it. Make a poem. Make a song. You that are musical, sing to the Lord. Honor him with the fruit of your lips. John Piper says, isn't it tremendous that whenever God gives us deliverance from the pit, puts a new song in our mouth? His aim is not only our benefit, but also the benefit of others through us. Let us never view our song as the stopping place of God's mercies. God's aim for us is to sing others into the kingdom. And then what we see with, with David here is the praises of testimony. So the first 11 verses are all giving praise to God. And he says in verse 4, happy, this is the word asher, asher in Hebrew. It's this idea that it's just translated happy or blessed. Happy is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Is the Lord your trust this morning? He's saying happy is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who doesn't turn to the proud or to those who go astray after a lie, into all the ways that we normally look for deliverance through our money, through our means, through our power, through our abilities, through other people. Those are all short-term. They won't ultimately deliver. That's why this, the psalmist was relentless on it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It's better to take refuge in the Lord and to trust in, in, in princes or don't trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there's no salvation. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth and that very day his thoughts perished. How blessed is the man whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord is God, Psalm 146. And David is saying happy, he's, he's happy because he's trusting in the Lord. Where are you looking for deliverance? In verse six to eight, six to ten, David has sought to please the Lord with his life. You remember when Samuel rebukes Saul when Saul says, "I've I've done what you've asked me to do," and and Saul's like, or Samuel's like, well, "What's the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What what is that?" You know, the Lord had told him to. to commit everything to destruction, but Saul kept these, the best portions for himself, but then he was going to offer them up to the Lord. And what did, what did Samuel say to Saul? He said, to obey is better than to sacrifice. And that's the idea here he's getting at in verses 6-8, uh, particularly verse 8, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear, burn offering and sin offering you have not required. God ultimately wants our hearts and he wants obedience, not, not just apathetic hearts that throw a few bleeding animals at it and say, well, let's let the blood take care of it. Let God's son take care of that. And we're not grieved by our sin. And We're not really trying to please the Lord with our lives. He was trying. But we know that, that David's, uh, in his obedience, his obedience was flawed. Verse 12 tells us his sins are more numerous than the hairs of my head. And David wasn't bald, okay? <laughs> he's saying he's struggling with sin. And so ultimately we know we need a, a, a true and better David that's going to live this out. But then in verse 12 to 20, now we have these petitions of lament. And, and you see the Christian life is this continual, we, we get delivered out of pit, we get put on a, on a, you know, our feet on a rock, but then later we find ourselves in a pit again. And so now he feels hemmed in in verse 12 of chapter 40. He's saying, evils have encompassed me. This is a theme in the Psalms. The idea is that David's feeling hemmed in. Psalm 22, David prayed, and and this is also Jesus' prayer in Psalm 22 about Jesus at the cross. But he says, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. This idea is that he's feeling hemmed in. And so he's making another prayer of deliverance. And in this prayer, I think it's, it's good for us to pray like this. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. How does the psalm end? Do not delay. The idea is hurry up, God, hurry up. Sometimes the psalmists are crying out, wake up, as if God's asleep. And the idea is that we're trying to get his attention. Make haste, do not delay. And in verse 14 and 15, we have prayers against enemies. It's okay to pray for your enemies, and it's okay to pray like this that God will bring them to shame. There's some wicked, terrible people that do awful things. Somehow I got sucked in last night watching 48 Hours before I went to bed and this guy has murdered his one wife and then he tried to drown his other wife in in, in water, jumped out of a boat and tried to kill her. And at the end, he finally gets some justice. He only got 12 years for it. But you you're, you're just like crying out for like This guy is so wicked. How could he get away with this? There are people like that. And David is experiencing people like that. They were trying to kill David. And so there are are real prayers that we pray against our enemies. Verses 14 and 15. Let them be put to shame. May they be disappointed. May they be turned back, brought to dishonor, who delight in my heart. Let them be appalled because of their shame, who are mocking me. And then David's praying in the pit. He's crying out with confidence, to God, confidence in God. This continues all throughout his life. I, what I want you to see from this is this idea that the, the Beatitudes, I've said this many times, the Beatitudes are all present tense. We don't pray, we don't say, blessed were the poor in spirit. Blessed were those who mourned. Blessed were those who hungered and thirsted. The Christian life is always lived in the present. Today, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you're poor in spirit this morning, you're bankrupt, you're needy, you're right where He wants you. If you're mourning here this morning and your heart is broken, God is right where he, He's got you, right where He wants you. Blessed are those who mourn, for you'll be comforted. You come here and you're thirsty, you are hungry, to be, your soul to be fed, you're in the right place. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Not not who did. Oh yeah, long ago I used to hunger and thirst. I used to mourn, but now I don't. It's present tense. So that's Jesus's, or that's David's life. Now let's move to the next picture. Now let's look at Jesus's life story. Same psalm. I said David wrote it, but the Holy Spirit wrote it. David wrote, but the Holy Spirit worked through him. And so some of the things that David wrote, he didn't even know about what he was writing. And so what David didn't do perfectly, Jesus did. Jesus is the true and better David. And what's implicit in Psalm 40 is explicit in Hebrews 10, where the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 40 to tell us the Christmas story from Psalm 40. Did you get the Christmas story in Psalm 40 this morning? Because it was right there. And here it is. In Hebrews 10, the writer of Hebrews quotes back to Psalm 40, and he says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, that's his birth. When Christ came into the world, he said, so he had to have said this to his father, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but, you, but a body the father prepared for the son. A body. And, and, the, and the, the Hebrew is literally ears you have dug for me. But the writer of Hebrews is quoting the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew in 250 BC, which says a body you have prepared for me. So how do we get from ears you have dug for me to body you prepared for me? Well, the idea of ears you have dug for me is either referring to two things. One, it's either referring to Exodus 21.6, when a master, when a servant is committed to his master for life, there was basically like this ceremony. You're to bring him to the door, to the doorpost. His master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. That's the idea of the the ear hole, okay? But the reference here is singular, and it probably fits better with Isaiah 54 to 6, which were the meditation verses in your bulletin you can look at. And Isaiah 54 to 6 is about the servant who's ultimately Jesus, and it says about him that he awakens my ear. And then it says the servant offers his back to the smiters and his cheeks, to those who pull out the beard, which is ultimately a reference to Christ and the cross and the crucifixion. So the imagery of an ear being dug or opened is the idea of consecration and dedication. And the writer of Hebrews quotes the Septuagint and changes the expression from ear you have dug to a body you have prepared for me. And the idea is the writer of Hebrews is giving us a heavenly conversation that Jesus is saying to his father about his earthly mission to come and save us. And so with that in mind, listen again to what we've read this morning. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said, when Jesus said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure and sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. Psalm 40, verse eight. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. Boy, that's a big verse. He abolishes the first, which is the whole sacrificial system of burnt offerings and sacrificial offerings. The whole Old Testament offering Levitical system is he abolishes the one in order to establish the second, which is from an old covenant to a new covenant. And the new covenant is, I will remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. He has put them behind us. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, when he went to the cross and he says he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We're already perfected. And yet there's a not yet. He's perfected us definitively. We are holy. We are called saints. And yet we're being sanctified because we still struggle with sin. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to this. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. I'll put my law into their hearts and write them on their minds. He's gonna change us and start to sanctify us because his law is now written on our hearts. And And the good news of the new covenant is I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds, no more. God doesn't remember your sins, why do you? We struggle with them more than God does. He hurls them into the depths of the sea and forgives them as far as the east is from the west. And Jesus did this with a body that he perfectly came and did the will of God. He lived out the law, kept the law perfectly. I've come to do your will, O oh God. To do the will of the, in the book. He laid down his life, where we have broken God's law and deserve death. William Shedd in his systematic theology put it like this. This is an important quote of what Christ did, and it has to do with his active obedience and his passive obedience, and we need both to save us. And he says this, the law requires present and perfect obedience as well as satisfaction for past disobedience. The law is not completely fulfilled by the endurance of penalty only. The law is not just fulfilled by crushing Jesus on a cross. As I've been saying, Jesus could have just popped down on Good Friday and come and saved us, and that would, and that would, that would have not been a sufficient salvation. He had to become come as a, born of a virgin, live a whole life completely living out the law and completely being obedient. It must also be obeyed. So Christ both endured the penalty due to man for disobedience and perfectly obeyed the law for him so that he is a vicarious substitute in both the precept and penalty of the law. By his active obedience, he obeyed the law. By his passive obedience, he endured the penalty. In this way, his vicarious work is complete. We have a whole salvation. You're not just forgiven. You are righteous. Because you're in Christ, if you're in him. So that's what Christ has come now, fulfilling Psalm 40, and where David's saying that his, his sins are more numerous than the hairs of my head. Well, Jesus didn't. Jesus took on those sins, but he's come to do the will and to lay down his life for us. And so now we get down to the next corner, which is, i got my outline a little mixed up. Right lower corner is my story, your story, my story. We need to learn to pray the Psalms. Pray Psalm 40. Learn to pray these prayers because we fall into miry pits all the time. We rush into miry pits. Sometimes we jump into pits. Sometimes we find ourselves in pits. Sometimes other people throw us into pits. And the pits come from real adversaries, real enemies. They're really people who hate us and people who want to bring us down. And so sometimes the pit can be a pit of financial ruin. It can be a lack of direction or purpose pit of self-pity, depression, bitterness, jealousy, miry pits of regrets over bad decisions, our bad temper, words of regret that we've said, painful consequences of sin, pits in bondage of lust, the pit of disappointments in this life, pits of being passed over at work, pits of being able to no longer function the way we used to once function pits of a difficult marriage, pits of children who disobey or despise you. Or I mean, we could go on and on. But here's, this, here's what I want you to catch from this, is that as you pray Psalm 40 and pray that God would lead you out of these pits and lead you to the rock, we need to know that God has already delivered us from the biggest pit, that our pit is small in comparison. Because as you think about this other tier and this other window, this other pane, is the Bible's big story, which Psalm 40 is telling. You see, what's the big pit? When it says he's lifted us out of the pit, it's a little bit bigger than than the pit of my financial crisis or the pit of bad decision. I mean, the pit, the Bible just tells us, bless the Lord, all my soul, bless the Lord, all his benefits, and bless the Lord, you know, who forgives all our iniquities, who heals all our sins, who redeems your life, from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy the big pit he saves us from is the pit of hell and nobody can save you from that pit but Jesus he's the only one who can save you from that pit he has the pity to get down into that pit with you and he's got the power to lift you out he doesn't just have pity he doesn't just have power he's got both he had pity on you and he came he has the power to lift you out and he died for you and he rose again for you he ascended with you and he's coming back with you think about this look at these look at these slides with me you got this ephesians 2 your position now in christ these verses are very familiar but think about where you are in light of these verses But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So think about the pit. Where was the pit? Uh, You're dead. That's a pit. (laughs) You're dead in trespasses and sins. How do you get to the rock? What did he do? What did you do? It says he did it. He did the work. He made us alive. He raised us up. He seated us with him. And where are you now, according to Ephesians 2, 4 to 6? You're seated with him now in heavenly places in Christ. And then Colossians 3 puts it like this. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The idea is that wherever Christ is, you are. You're united to him. So you're hidden with him. And so when he appears, well, you're gonna appear too. With him, because you're in him. and Christ is seated now in heavenly places, therefore so are you. you see, that's good news, isn't it? I know some of you probably saw the Facebook post that I put yesterday, and for those of you who didn't, I'll tell you the story. Uh, there was a last uh, Christmas, this Christmas, Monday. In Utah, there was the most incredible save of a boy that was in the water for 30 minutes in Utah. He went out on the water chasing his dog. Is a small little town in Utah called New Harmony. Uh, top, I think the people are less than 250 people. It's Christmas day, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, 4.30. He runs out after his dog, 25 feet into the ice. He goes through. His buddy tries to help him. He runs, gets the parents. They call 911, and the guy that gets to the scene is a police officer who had diver training. And the reason that he'd had diver training and had experience with rescuing people in water is because he was part of where somebody had done, they were diving from cliffs one time, and somebody didn't come up, and he had to wait for the divers, and they, the guy died. And so this guy had gotten diver training. So this police officer who's 46 years old shows up on the scene and realizes Nobody else is around. I don't have the equipment. He made the decision, I'm going in. And he stripped down and he started at the beginning and he began to break the water as it was, and he works his way out and he's getting wet. The water's going up higher and higher and he keeps cracking the ice and he's breaking it with his forearms. He cut himself, had to get stitches on his hands, nerve damage, and he's breaking that ice and he keeps breaking it as he goes out there. And he gets out there, and he realizes the ice is too thick. He's got to start stomping on it and breaking through. And finally, he's got enough water that he's out there. He actually dove to the bottom, went to the bottom to see how deep the water was. So if i got to find this body, I need to know how deep the water is. It's 37 degrees, this water. He goes down to the bottom, realizes it's about seven, seven and a half feet, and there's reeds, and his feet are touching the reeds. So he knows that the body is not going to be in the reeds, but floating on top of the reeds, somewhere between that and the ice. And so he's using his hands, and he's, he's trying to feel for this boy that's in the water. And he said he was to the point where he knew that his life, his own life, was in jeopardy. And he found the boy. He got him out of the water. He yelled to the paramedics, and they put him in a helicopter. And you have like this golden hour when it's super, super icy, and cold water like that where your, your body is able to somehow survive. And so this kid is fine. This kid was saved, even though he had been in the water 30 minutes and his hand, had went, his, he had lifted his hand like four minutes. He'd been at least under for four minutes, completely under. And this guy went in and got him. Now, you see this story. I'm like, that guy is a hero. And the family is indebted to that man because he did like what C.S. Lewis talked about, the quote where he dives down and, and Jesus comes and dives down to bring up new humanity with him. But what makes this story so incredible is the guy almost died, but he didn't. What makes our story so much more special is that Jesus did die. We were the ones dead in the water, dead. And he died for us in our place to rescue us. I read this week, Athanasius on the Incarnation. And this is this old document, okay, back from the 300s in the time of Arius and the Nicene Creed. The hero was Contra Contramundum. It's not that hard to read. I can't believe I've never read it. But I want to give you two quotes from Athanasius to give you something meaty to think about as we close today. This is from the 300s. And Athanasius, his argument was the word, being Jesus, he knew that death was the only way that humanity could be saved from corruption. Yet it was impossible for the word, Jesus, to suffer death, being immortal and the son of the father. Therefore, he took on a body capable of death, so that his body being joined to the word who was above all might be worthy to die in the place of all and might be inhabited by the word remain incorruptible stopping our own corruptibility from then on by the grace of the resurrection by offering this body to death as a pure sacrifice he instantly took death away from all his fellow people and then he goes on to say he took our body And not only so, he took it directly from a spotless, stainless virgin without the agency of human father, a pure body untainted by intercourse with man. He, the mighty one, himself prepared this body in the virgin as a temple for himself. He took it as his very own, as the instrument through which he was known and in which he dwelt. Thus taken a body like our own, because all our bodies were liable to the corruption of death, he surrendered his body to death instead of all and offered it to the Father. This he did out of sheer love for us, so that in his death all might die, and the law of death thereby be abolished, because having fulfilled in his body that which for which it was appointed, it was thereafter voided of its power for men." This he did that he might turn again to incorruption, men who had turned back to corruption and make them alive through death by the appropriation of his body and by the grace of his resurrection. Thus, he would make death to disappear from them as utterly as straw from fire. Have you ever thrown straw into a fire? It sure does go woof and it's gone. What Jesus did by his death is that's what he's done now to death. Death, where's your sting? He died for us. So we go straight from death to into his presence forever. We're alive forevermore. That's the good news. A body was prepared for Jesus. He abolished the first covenant and all these sacrifices by the shedding of his own blood. And now he has inaugurated this new covenant With his flesh. He was the curtain now that's been torn. And now we come ushering right into the presence of God because of Jesus who loved us and has taken flesh to himself forever like us in every way yet without sin. Identifying with us. Dying for us. Raised for us. And guess where we are now? Raised with him. Are you in him this morning? If so... You know that He's going to take you out of any pit that you're in and lead you to the rock forever. If that's not your true testimony this morning, let me ask you to pray and ask Him to save you from your sin. That's what He came to do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we stand amazed at what you have done to take a body, a human body, made yourself nothing. We think humanity is so special, yet you tell us in Ephesians or Philippians 2 that you made yourself nothing, taking on flesh. Thank you for taking it forever to yourself and bringing us in to yourself. And that when you rose, we rose. When you died, we died. And we've been raised in newness of life. So Lord, we give you our pits. We give you our hurts, our wounds. Asking you to heal us, knowing that you've already won the ultimate healing for us. Would you lift up our hearts, lift up our heads. Give us encouragement from your spirit to know these things are true. And if the big picture has been won... You will win these little ones in your time. Give us the grace to wait upon you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.